Welcome to the Addy Hour, where we talk brain science, mental health, faith, culture, and social justice. Having attended one of Dr. Addy's town halls, I can tell you that it's vital information for anyone living in America right now. It was the first time in a very, very long time where I felt like all of me could show up, each parts of my identity. I'm your host, Dr. Nee Addy. My friend, Dr. Nee Addy, is such a unique person who is both scientifically astute, understands the human soul and the mind. At the same time, he has compassion and empathy for the masses. He's been nothing but a blessing to my congregations and my friends. It was the first time I felt like it was safe to talk about issues that are usually not talked about, like mental health and faith and wrestling with your identity. By the end, I walked out feeling so much more validated and hopeful. Well, welcome back to another episode of the Addy Hour. I'm honored today to be able to host a conversation about oxytocin and social behavior, community and mental health. In a lot of ways, these topics have come up in a lot of our conversations on this podcast already, but we really haven't been able to dig into the science of social behavior and community. So today I'm honored to be able to host two um, revered scientists, a revered scientist and philosopher um, and luminaries in this, in this area to really engage in this conversation. So the first guest I'd like to introduce is Dr. Larry Young. Larry is the director of the Center for Translational Social Neuroscience and the director of the Silvio O'Conti Center for Oxytocin and Social Cognition at Emory University in Atlanta. He's also the William P. Timmy Professor of Psychiatry at the Emory School of Medicine, and he leads the Center for Social Network, uh, Neural Networks at the University of Scuba in Japan. So quite a few different leadership roles. He's someone who's uh, also been a recipient of numerous awards, including the Golden Brain Award, the Frank Beach Award, the ACMP Daniel H. Efron Award, and he's a fellow in the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. His research focuses on the neurobiological mechanisms underlying social relationships and how we can translate some of that into treatments for psychiatric illnesses with social deficits, such as autism. He's someone that I had the pleasure of interacting with over the years as a fellow neuroscientist. He's actually hosted me at his institution and Served in some mentoring roles as well, which I'm really grateful for. So today I'm honored to be able to welcome him here to the Addy Hour podcast. Thanks for being here, Larry. Thank you for inviting me. It's wonderful. Thank you. The second guest, which I'd like to introduce, is Dr. Patricia Smith-Churchland, who is a professor emerita of philosophy at the University of California, San Diego, and also an adjunct professor at the Salk Institute. She is someone who has been a pioneer in several different ways. Specifically, her work focuses on discoveries in neuroscience and how that impacts traditional philosophical ideas. She's the author of several books, one, the pioneering book, Neurophilosophy, but also the book, Computation, Computational Brain, also Brain Trust, What Neuroscience Tells Us About Morality, Touching a Nerve, Conscience, The Origins of Moral Intuition, and she has been a... a, a just a celebrated speaker over the years as well, having had listened to some of her recent and uh, talks from a few years back, I've been really impressed with the way that she really has brought this neurophilosophy to the forefront. She's someone who's been the past president of the American Philosophical Association and the Society of Philosophy and Psychology. She won a MacArthur Prize in 1991, a Rossi Prize for Neuroscience in 2008, and a Prose Prize for Science for her book, Brain Trust. 
So someone, again, as I mentioned, who's very celebrated, has also was also a previous uh, philosophy department chair at the University of California, San Diego. So I'm honored to be able to welcome Pat Churchland to the Addy Hour podcast as well. Thanks for being here. Thanks so much for having me. It's really a great pleasure. Well, I'm grateful to both of you for the work that you do. And again, this, I think, is a conversation that's been a long time coming on this podcast as these topics and your names have actually come up on previous episodes. So full circle for us in a lot of ways. Um, but as my listeners know, I often just like to start out and check in with how people are doing. Both of you, as we can hear from your CVs, have very active lives. And so I'm curious to you know how you're both doing in this moment and also what occupies you in your time on a daily basis. So Pat, actually, if we could start with you, that'd be great. Well, I'm doing very well, actually, but, you know, I'm retired. And um, so you know, I I can do what I want with my days. And I, I find that to be an absolutely amazing experience. So I, I do a lot of reading, of course, um, but I also walk the dog a lot. And I do about an hour of yoga every day and meet up with my friends for drinks in the afternoon and like that. I also watch some football. Wow. So a full, a full plate. I mean, that's encouraging to hear how, I mean, how active you are. You said you're retired, but you sound still very active in a lot of ways, which is excellent. Lots of ways. Yeah. Well, you know, at, at a certain point, of course, your body will tell you uh, you're done and it hasn't told me that yet. So I'm still, excellent. you know, I'm still going. Excellent. Excellent. Larry, what about you? Yeah, things are going real well with us here. We're able to, uh, you know, uh, work in the lab and uh, come to work every day and see people you know, there was a time when uh, we didn't get to do that. And I, that really was uh, strange. And, uh, you know, I, I didn't like that very much. But, uh, you know, so far, we, we've been able to adjust pretty well. Uh, during the pandemic, I decided to uh, really try to get healthy. And I started exercising. So now, every day, I sort of start my day off with an exercise routine and uh, come into work and um, just try to, you know, get as much social interaction as I can. One thing I do miss, though, is being able to travel as much yeah. as I used to be yeah. able to. Yeah. Uh, really meeting other other scientists face-to-face, -face, uh, that's so important, and we've just been missing that for a long mm -hmm. time now. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, like I find that. that, too. I mean, I find that Zoom works quite well when you're talking to people you already know, mm. but if, like... I'm going to be giving a Zoom talk to folks in Saudi Arabia, and I would so much rather be there and uh, and then have a chance to interact with them and talk about the 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 work and so forth. And and so that is disappointing. But mm. but really, in the long haul of life, it's not something I can complain about. Right, right. But just that opportunity that we had before to, I mean, in a sense, experience the culture in a different way than you would. Absolutely. On the computer. Yeah. 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 So that makes a lot of sense. I know we're going to get to the social behavior piece eventually, but it's just, you know, as I'm listening to both of you talk and thinking about your areas of research and as you're sharing about the losses of having those connections, I think a lot of things are uh, full circle in some ways. Although I will start with a, a question in a sense uh, for both of you. Do you think, you know, even as people who study social behavior, did it catch you off guard at all how much we've missed those rhythms or how it's affected us? Or would you say that was completely expected? I don't know. Um, I think people do vary yeah. um, both as a function of temperament and as a function of age mm -hmm. and what kinds of routines and skills and so forth they have. 
um, in how much the the isolation has has affected them. It affects everybody to to some degree, of course, but um, it it's clear that some people are much more deeply bothered um, by it than others, and I'm not quite sure scientifically what that's what that tells us. Right, right. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that there are some people who. Well, they, maybe they they at first they feel they're thriving by you know mm-hmm. being at home and maybe they're introverted. They don't somehow yeah. social interactions are a little bit uh, give them anxiety and mm-hmm. uh, then but then I think that you know by completely avoiding those social interactions, but even when we have the opportunity now, um, you know I think that's really doing some maybe some damage to their serious to their mental health. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, especially if they continue to avoid the the social interactions that mm-hmm. because they really are healthy. Yeah, yeah. Although it's funny, you know, I I, I was reflecting on on all of this and thinking about you know I grew up in the in this very remote area of British Columbia and there were lots of people uh, who would be off prospecting in the mountains mm. for months and months mm. on end. Wow, maybe not even a dog. And then there were the fur trappers a little bit further north who would be out in the in in the bush all winter trapping. And then they would come in in the spring with their furs and they'd whoop it up a little bit and back they'd go. And I was, you know, it made me wonder, is it perhaps hmm. the, the expectation of sociality hmm. and then not getting it? that we find particularly painful because I mean these old prospectors and fur trappers they they, well their social skills weren't terrific as you may imagine and of course you know they certainly needed a bath but uh, (laughs) but on the other hand they did not seem to have suffered mentally as a result of being on their own for so long mm-hmm. and i i mean it was just part of life then yep. but now i look back on it and i think how did those guys do that yeah well yeah i think certainly there's individual variation and in, in how you know we how much we need social interactions uh, but i think for for young people it's especially important because yeah. they're still a developing mm-hmm. i mean yeah. i mean students and graduate students and people in the early phases of their career I think it's the social interactions is so important for building the networks that help yeah. them uh, succeed. Those trappers, maybe they were already fixed in their ways. And all <laughs> they, they needed to do were. was trap. Um, <laughs> probably were. Yeah. So, yeah. but uh, building that social skills because you know things are going to change again in mm-hmm. two, three, four years. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Uh, our, our livelihood is going to you know require social interactions and social skills yeah and i'm just afraid that some people are not are you know they're missing out on the normal development of those skills mm. yeah 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 i think those are really important points i'm intrigued about that you know I, not there's a clear answer but the expectation component too and how yeah. much that plays into it so i mean yeah, you could just hear that in the the public discourse and how much yeah. angst there seemed to be around the expectation to be together and the inability to be able to do that yeah to have to facilitate it through other means and then later to your point i mean all the developmental components i mean there's um, obviously an intersection there as well i don't know if that's something that people will try and look at down the road is definitely an interesting mm-hmm. question uh, that will have long-term impacts i mean just developmentally thinking about how i mean even if we think about younger you know kids preschool yeah. and elementary school 
what impact right. this is going to have down the road for their it, social development. It, even those kids that are going to school uh, and they have they went for a couple of years, yeah. not seeing the faces of other kids. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, or the facial expression, you know, we learn from those oh. real social interactions. So mm-hmm. Huge. You know, uh, rewiring that happens to help us learn, mm-hmm. you know, what other people are thinking, reading emotions, and they're missing yeah. that. And yeah. I think you know, it's really kind of opened up a whole new field of study for the mm-hmm. next decade or so. Mm-hmm. You know, it was um, you know what what, are the, what is has been the impact of this? Right. The other thing that's changing things so much is you know with the COVID came this Zoom and the ability to interact so easily over Zoom, and um, you know that's sort of really taking the place of a lot of regular social interaction and you know what are the consequences of that you know and also dating Uh, people have had a hard time dating right it's really and now so in a couple for a couple of years people have had you know have to date in a different way and so that can have a long lasting impact as well you know yeah yeah so much to process and think about i definitely want to come back to that but even as we you know we've already touched on so many topics about development and the social interactions as well i want to just take a step back and have you all actually take us through the science and philosophy of the social body and social relationships? Because I know some in our audience are familiar with that. Some are, are vaguely familiar with it. have heard about oxytocin a little bit, or I've heard about, you know, the love hormone as people sometimes <laughs> make it out to be uh, <laughs> oversimplistic. Yes. But in a sense, just want to kind of start there and, and have you share what we know, both from your own research and your own thinking and from the field as well. So um, Larry, can you take us through a little bit of the biology yeah. Of, yeah. of what we know at this point? Yeah, well, let me first start, let's say something about oxytocin since you mentioned that. And mm-hmm. because this is a really uh, important molecule for social interactions, and it was first uh, discovered for its role in giving birth. It's the, the molecule that's mm-hmm. released from the mother's brain when it's time to give birth and it causes uterus contractions. And then after the baby is born, the baby begins to suckle, to nurse. Oxytocin is released to eject the milk so the baby can get the, the, the milk uh, to uh, thrive. Uh, but what we also know is that it's also acting in the brain to focus the attention of the mother to the baby and to bond with that baby and to feel a real sense of connection. And, uh, you know, that was some of the first knowledge that we knew about oxytocin and social behavior. And then mm-hmm. Uh, in in my work, we started working with these voles. These are little rodents. They look like hamsters. They're natural animals that live out in the Midwest United States. And uh, there were two different kinds of voles. There was one called the prairie vole, which is uh, they live. They have a family life very similar to our mm. our own. Mm. Uh, the male and female come together. They mate. After mating, a transformation happens in the brain, and they form a bond. And then they they basically live in that partnership for the rest of their life. They raise their offspring together. Then the other species is a, a meadow vole. They're solitary. They're like those trappers. Uh, they prefer to be by themselves. And and uh, so we've been studying them to see you know what is the chemistry of that bond in the prairie voles. And it turns out that oxytocin, the same molecule that's responsible for giving birth, is also helping to seal that bond between these prairie voles. That bond that lasts a lifetime. And, and oxytocin interacts with other molecules like dopamine, which is involved in reward and pleasure and the opiate system. And uh, what we've kind of learned is that, you know, a pair bond, at least the strong romantic bond, is, is very much like an addiction to a partner. Mm. Uh, but now we know oxytocin is also really important for all uh, many other kinds of bonds, you know, bonds between a dog uh, and the owner. When, a, when your dog looks at you in the eyes, 
it causes you to release oxytocin mm. and then want to nurture that dog. Um, also, just, you know, social touch, you know, looking eye to eye contact causes uh, oxytocin release. And, and, and it seems that what oxytocin is really doing is helping, is helping tune the brain into the social stimuli mm-hmm. so that we pay attention to that and can navigate our social world in the appropriate way. Excellent. Well, thanks for, for taking us through. I know a lot of people are going to be just enlightened with that information. And uh, it's great to have that, you know, that understanding again, because it's come up in so many different ways. And Pat, as someone who has, you know, expertise both in neuroscience and in philosophy, or more appropriately in neurophilosophy, and who is also engaged in this, how has how has this information informed your work and your uh, conversations uh, with people around these aspects of bonding? Well, it's huge, of course, because in in one respect, it really constitutes the platform um, for what we call morality. But I want to step back and and because the sort of bonding that we see in mammals and birds is really unique. Mm. Um, and so you want to say, well, because many people have been very skeptical of the idea, Richard Dawkins actually is one, um, that, that there could be genuine altruism, that I could, as it were, sacrifice something of my, that I want for the good of another. And and so the so so the idea is that that could never evolve because if there were altruistic individuals, all these selfish guys would take advantage and poof, that's that. So so part of what really motivated me after I learned about the bulls from Larry was why would this happen? Why would there be this kind of evolution? And I think the story actually goes way, way back about 200 million years to the fact that warm bloodedness appeared on the face of the planet. Hmm. And um, the great thing about being warm blooded is that you can forage at night. All those other guys have to wait for the sun to come up, but you can forage at night. But as with with many sort of changes in evolution, there's a downside. And the downside is that gram for gram, a warm-blooded animal has to eat 10 times as much. Now that's a huge evolutionary constraint. As you know, you can go off and leave your lizard alone for a week and it doesn't, you know, it's not going to be starving when you get back. It doesn't need to eat that much. And also lizards and snakes don't take care of their young. They just have them and off they go. So what happens such that mothers and in many cases, fathers, especially in birds, do this amazing thing, which is make this enormous sacrifice for their offspring? And the answer is this, that to meet this ecological constraint of eating so much, getting so much energy, basically mother nature invented the cortex. And that's a way of letting the animals learn a huge amount about their environment and hence, in a certain sense, makes them smart. Birds have cortex too. It doesn't look like it. It's just a little different from ours. Mm -hmm. So, okay, but if you're going to have cortex, then what? Uh, It better not be already fully developed. It better be so immature that uh, the baby can learn from its environment. 
And that means the offspring are born very, very immature. So then mother nature has a problem. Well, if they're that immature, they're not like a turtle that can just come out of an egg and off they go. A baby mouse can't do anything. It's deaf and blind and hairless. And we're pretty bad too. So you have to have some sort of mechanism. And this is what obviously evolved in mammals and birds. Some sort of mechanism whereby the thing that gives birth is also the thing that begins to take care of it. And oxytocin, although it was plentiful in the body all over the place for hundreds of millions of years, was put to a very new role. And that role had to do with bonding and feeling good when you were with the baby, feeling bad when the babies were gone or if they were being predated and so forth. So that I think, you know, it puts morality into a completely different perspective from what most of the evolutionary biologists had thought for so long, namely that it has to be beaten into kids. No other animal has anything like it uh, because it goes against evolution. And the answer is nuts. It is an evolutionary development. Um, so there's more, of course, to the story. But I like the fact that something as indirect, shall we say, as being warm-blooded mm. turns out to be the essential part of the causal story for the emergence of something like attachment and bonding, which is the essential platform for morality. Mm -hmm. So much there. And so yeah. many things that we can pick apart too. And one thing I'd like yeah. to just follow up on, because we started to talk about this developmental piece a little bit already too. So what are the implications of that? Because you talked about the young, not having yeah. that developed cortex yet and needing that bonding. So what are the implications of that bonding happening early on for life down the road? And for either of you who want to, to jump into that. Well, I've just held forth, so I'm going to let Larry uh, start with that. But I'll talk about Alison Perkybile's work, too. Yeah, so we've done some interesting work in the, in the voles that show that if the, if the, uh, the pups experience a little bit of neglect, so they don't mm -hmm. get as much licking and grooming from their mother. That licking and grooming causes oxytocin release in the brain. And if for the first two weeks of life, they get less of that, then when they grow up, they actually have a difficulty forming relationships as adults. So, uh, you know, this work suggests that, you know, as an infant, as the infant's brain is developing, the kind of nurturing that it gets from the parents, the eye-to-eye -eye contact, the, you know, the talking uh -huh, to each other, uh -huh. the, the touching, all of that stuff is really causing a, a series of chemical events in the brain, such as the release of oxytocin. Mm -hmm. That's help constructing the yeah. circuitry that determines how that individual is going to be able to relate to others uh, yeah. later in life. And I think that that's a, a huge, it has yeah. huge societal mm -hmm. implications because before, you know, knowing this kind of research, you know, people just think, well, the baby is born, they're going to develop, however. Yeah. But they really, their future child, yeah. Your adult child really depends on how you nurture that child. Yeah. It's, it's, it's really, really critical. 
I think a part of the story that we haven't really touched on that's so important here is, is the, the other part of oxytocin, and that is the receptor on a neuron to which the oxytocin binds. Because what Larry uh, and his cohort discovered was that it's the density of oxytocin receptors mm -hmm. in very specific parts of the brain that determines whether or not you're going to be a long-term pair bonder or not. Mm -hmm. And similarly, you know, we see that in, in some mammals, there aren't uh, male-female bonds that are super strong, like in baboons, but what there are are matrilines. The, the the head lady and her daughters and her daughters and her daughters and so forth. And so we can see that just by, you know, these subtle alterations mm -hmm. of the pattern of where the oxytocin receptors are, you get changes. Mm -hmm. So to follow up on, on the developmental point that Larry was making, Alison Perkybile showed that when baby mice are taken from the mother and for even just a few hours a day and they're not licked or groomed, but they're fed and kept warm and then they're put back. Um, what you see is uh, a lowering of the density of receptors in the places where you would expect it. And like Larry's work with the voles, what she found was that when those animals then become mothers, they are, so to speak, bad mothers. They don't really care that much. They don't bond much to their babies. I mean, they don't have they don't have the mechanism. Mm -hmm. They don't have the receptors for the oxytocin mm -hmm. to latch onto. Yeah. And so I agree with Larry. I think this is just this is just super super important. I mean, we all knew that it wasn't very good to put those Uran uh, those Romanian orphans in in cribs and leave them there for years. Mm -hmm. But um, we understand uh, in a very direct way now why it was so terrible. Yeah. Yeah, and that's so powerful. I mean, both what you both mentioned, just powerful. having that understanding of the brain mechanisms mm -hmm. and how yeah. that impacts down the road. Go ahead, Larry. Yeah, I was just saying, you know, we did another study that's uh, the first study that I mentioned was about, you know, the neglect where the right. pups were like sort of left alone for three hours a day, only three hours a day. That's not the I know, it's amazing. Uh, but we also did experiments where they were raised by only the mom or the mom and the dad. And so in the case with only the mom, the mom had to forage for food and left the pups alone in the nest for a certain mm -hmm. amount of time. Or when they were both parents were there, they were always had a parent that was, uh, engaged with the pups mm -hmm. even the pups that were that were raised only by the mother with just one parent they had uh, more difficulty forming relationships really? later in life so it is not just you know at the extremes um so i think the lesson That's from that very is interesting. that um you know that it is the um you know sort of the total amount of nurturing that 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 individuals get, that babies get whether it mm -hmm. comes from their grandmother mm -hmm. um yeah. from their aunt or from their father or from the mother it's mm. you know all of that sort of is a cumulative kind of thing and yeah. so you can think of it you know babies this is a project that you're working on to try to build a healthy individual yeah. for the mm -hmm. next um generation you know yeah absolutely yeah i i that is a beautiful experiment actually mm. i didn't know about that yeah yeah definitely fascinating and for those who, who are listening who may be hearing a lot of this the science for the first time too i imagine that it's both fascinating and intimidating at the same time, because even as you're describing some of the experiments, 
one perspective could be, well, if that's happened, does that mean that that person is now, you know, set to have disruptive relationships going forward? Or are there things that happen later on that can also still have effects on the brain when we talk about changes in the brain and plasticity? So how, how do those processes later on in life also intersect with some of these early differences that you've talked about, whether someone, you know, if we think about humans, if people have had neglect in certain situations, is that something that are they stuck in that category or what, what happens mm-hmm. down the road? Yeah, no, I, I don't think that they're stuck in that category, but they have that, that sort that trajectory. Mm-hmm. And if that trajectory isn't changed, that mm-hmm. trajectory can change, you know, uh, as they reach adolescence or mm-hmm. past adolescence, yeah. or even, um, you know, as in adults, um, but it needs the attention to do that. You know, they, mm-hmm. someone, uh, either that individual or someone needs to say, okay, I, I need to engage in things that would, would put me in the right direction. Yeah. You know? mm-hmm. And um, so it's just as long as we are aware. So, so even genes, you know, we often hear genes uh, predict behavior, but having a gene doesn't mean that you have to engage in that mm-hmm. behavior that mm-hmm. it predicts. It's just, uh, these are all just vectors that sort of point people in certain directions and mm-hmm. le- if left alone, they will continue to go in that direction. But the knowledge that these are directors that are pointing people in directions, and we know that that's not the right direction, mm-hmm. we should think of ways to change the direction. Because mm-hmm. um, it means, you know, uh, health and happiness all the way through life. You know, mm-hmm. we we live mm-hmm. way past our childhood. Mm-hmm. And um, we don't want to, you know, if we had difficulty in childhood, we don't want to be stuck with the remnants of that difficulty, mm-hmm. we want to fix those. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I sometimes think of the small communities of hunter-gatherers or people like, you know, small groups of Inuit, maybe in, you know, 10 or 20 living in a small community where somebody's always there, somebody's always carrying the baby in, in the hood. And, um, and, I, I do think city life makes things a little more difficult, shall we say? Mm. Um, you know, we, we don't always uh, know the people next door, so we don't always pitch in mm. when we know that the baby really needs uh, a certain amount of cuddling and care. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, really well said. Well, I appreciate, you know, the context that you've both put this in and with the, the, uh, the biology of it as well. And, you know, I think of both of you as really excellent communicators and excellent scientists, scientific communicators in terms of taking this knowledge that we have and making sure that it's part of the public discourse. Would you say that in terms of, I mean, everything that you both have described and what we've learned about the importance of these bonds, are we really paying attention to that enough as a society or are there more things that we should do? Because Larry even talked about, you know, if those things happen early on, we can change the trajectory. I'm wondering even what are some of the ways that we do change that trajectory? Yeah. I know I just asked two questions at once, but yeah, I was thinking of the first one. Well, you know, it depends on the society because in many countries like Sweden, you know, they have uh, enacted yeah. laws and policies that really uh, enhance the parental engagement, you know, with paternal mm. leave of, uh, you know, from work mm. and uh, longer time uh, with the child. So um, in this country, we're lagged behind some other countries, yeah. but, but I think that we are, I mean, slowly, uh, gaining this understanding much more than we were 20, 40, 60 years ago. Mm-hmm. So we are, we are making improvements mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, uh, as science goes forward, you know, this is the business we're in science trying to figure out, you know, how things work and, and how to make things better. 
I think that we are moving in the right direction mm. just by appreciating the biology. Mm-hmm. I think the other part of the story too that that needs emphasis is that it isn't just that the child needs to be cuddled and so forth. It also, especially in humans, but also dogs and and many kinds of species of mammal, the infants are hugely disposed to imitate others, adults, siblings, and so forth. And how they learn the norms of their group is from watching and interacting and doing things and being told, yes, yes, that's great, or no, you don't want to do that, and so forth. And this is a part of the story that engages a very ancient system, and that is the reward system, which is largely subcortical, but of course has very dense interactions with cortex as well. And so it's really important not only that the children are loved and nurtured, but they also have the opportunities to interact in social ways so that they come to understand that on the, on the whole, truth-telling is better than fibbing and that, that uh, disagreements can best be resolved sometimes by working it out rather than by bonking somebody on the noggin and so on. Mm. But, but they need to pick these things up. And if they are raised in circumstances that are really grim, they're going to pick up very different kinds of norms. Mm-hmm. And, and, and then it's going to be hard to undo those. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so, so I think that's a reason why family life and extended family life are really very important, why grandparents have an important role to play, and as well as siblings and aunts and uncles and neighbors and, mm-hmm. and, and dogs. <laughs> so, yeah, um, it is. I mean, dogs teach kids a lot, mm-hmm. um, and, and that's they're learning norms that, that most of us can't even articulate even now. Mm. But we know, mm-hmm. we know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's so important. And again, it seems that there is just a lot of uh, onus on each member of the family and the community in, in yeah, so many different I ways. I mean, I'm wondering also just from a philosophical perspective, what does that say about us as humans and the importance of altruism? I mean, as we have learned about all these different right. all these different outcomes and effects that these interactions can have on our fellow human beings, what, what responsibility would you say that that has for us as fellow humans? Well, I think you know we even in small hunter gatherer groups, people understand in a very deep way the importance of cooperation and mutual defense and and so forth, and um, and and I think that children are very quick to pick to pick that up. We also see in cross-species uh, alliances, for example, between wolves and humans or between wolves and galata baboons, mm. that there can be very close relationships because they cooperate with each other. Mm. And, and that's really valuable. In the case of, the, of, of us and the baboons, the wolves are very important in helping to drive off predators. Mm-hmm. Um, and in return, uh, the baboons tolerate them. They, they don't snuggle with them in the way we snuggle with dogs, but maybe it took us a few generations as well. <laughs> I don't know. 
<laughs> well, yeah, I think one of the interesting things about altruism is that we've learned from, well, in work with animals, but also in, in humans is that uh, we tend to think of individual others in our species as either within our group or out group. Mm. Yeah. And yeah. so we exhibit altruistic behavior towards those that are in our group. Mm -hmm. And altruistic behavior is, you know, someone is, is needs help and you help them. You detect that they need the help and then you help them. And I think that evolved from the brain mechanisms of maternal behavior because mothers are always altruistic. Yeah. Mm -hmm. They yeah. can see their, hear their pup being in distress or their baby, or they can, yeah. a wildebeest can see their, their baby being approached by a lion. Yeah. And then they'll risk their life to, mm -hmm. to help that, uh, mm -hmm. their baby. But I think in humans, that same the same neurobiological processes have been expanded to others in our group, mm. because when we help our group, our group does better. The problem is, is yeah. who do we see as in our group, and who do we see outside <laughs> of our group? Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, I think that that um, you know those divisions of who's who's us and who's not. I mean, mm -hmm. you can see it in politics right now. You know, mm -hmm. us and them. And um, yeah, so that kind of division was something that we, we really need to grapple with how to yeah. erase those boundaries and sort of, you know, so that the group uh, becomes, you know, all of us. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And increasingly, I think, you know, people, people are recognizing that because the planet isn't an infinitely large place and because uh, things like climate affect us all, mm -hmm. that we do need to cooperate with people that we don't know and mm -hmm. maybe never see and so forth. Nevertheless, I think the strongest, I think this is almost certainly to remain the case, but the strongest um, desire for help and reaching out and so forth is going to be local. Mm. Um, I mean, there is a group of philosophers who say that's wrong, that it should always be, you know, the person who's most needy wherever they are on the planet. But, you know, I mean, like I have this friend who's who cuts people's hair. I mean, she's a hairdresser, I guess. And a couple of times a month, she takes her tools and the chair and goes down and cuts the hair of homeless people. Mm. Now, maybe they don't need her time as much as somebody else on the other side of the planet. But I think it's asking too much <laughs> to ask her, you know, to figure out who really needs her help and to quit running downtown to help, the, you know, to cut the hair of the homeless people. On the other hand, where I absolutely agree with, with Larry is that we don't want to let localness kind of be the enemy of looking further afield when it's really important to do so. And um, so we have to both, you know, be motivated as we all are mm -hmm. when it's somebody we know. Uh, but we also don't want to have the the, the sort of in-group thing where we're the good guys and they're the bad guys. That's when the trouble starts. Yeah, yeah. So many important pieces there. And I, I love how you've tied in that aspect of altruism and just what the scientists showed us about you know, the within group versus the without group. Um, so many, you know, so many directions I could go and I'm, I'm formulating the ideas as I, as I talk <laughs> through this. So bear with me as, as we go through it. But I mean, that's just yeah. something that we've thought a lot about on this podcast as well, as we've talked about aspects of social justice. And then even Larry, as you were talking, 
it reminded me of those components to thinking who is within the group and who's outside and the benefits yeah. of helping those within our group. But then also on the but, flip side, the detriments of yeah. things that happen within the group. So I've referenced a couple of times, you know, some of David Williams work at Harvard, looking specifically at black and brown communities and the long-term detrimental mental health effects when there are individuals in those communities who are killed at the hands of police when they're unarmed. Oh, oh and yeah. so the way it, it goes both ways. And so even as we're talking about this, just makes me think, and not, you know, not that there's evidence for this per se, but the power of expanding those groups mm-hmm. and what that would do for us collectively as a society, yeah. whether there would be some of these aspects of the bonding right. that would happen from a biological perspective that would have long-term yeah. effects, even in adults, even though we're past. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree. I mean, there, and there is some work on chimpanzees mm-hmm. who um, where the, the field observers were watching two groups because mm-hmm. they were both getting rather large and they rather suspected that there was going to be a bit of a, of a, a, a fight eventually, which, mm-hmm. which there was, but they managed to collect urine samples from, from uh, the members of the group before and after the mm-hmm. incident. The oxytocin levels had gone through the roof. Mm-hmm. These guys were... They were all of a sudden so bonded to each other. Mm -hmm. And also probably, I mean, Larry could speak to this better than I, their stress levels had gone down. Mm -hmm. um, And so they weren't quite as afraid. And boy, did they go at it. And that's very biological. Now, are are humans like that? It would surprise me if we didn't see it, for example, in football teams. Mm. Uh, or base basketball teams. Maybe baseball's too slow for it, but um. yeah, you cer- certainly do. You you uh, with, with uh, if you give someone oxytocin and you tell them that these people are on your team, mm-hmm. uh-huh. uh, you're more likely to do something altruistic to them, mm-hmm. and uh, maybe be more defensive to someone who's told yeah. you are told is not on your team. Yeah, and so you know, I think that um, it's it's a big it's, deal. It's, it's it's a very it's a very difficult thing in terms of, you know, racism in the society and, mm-hmm. and to, to fix it right away. Um, it's not, a, it's not going to be an instant fix, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, if by thinking about this, uh, you know, this, the biology of responding to in-groups and out-groups, you know, mm-hmm. what we need to do is to try to, you know, think of ways, uh, move forward in ways so that uh, race is not, um, or skin right. color is not a factor to determine mm-hmm. in-group versus out-group. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and that, you know, can be done, you know, through, uh, you know, making sure that diversity is represented right. in all aspects of our lives. So mm-hmm. we can see, you know, whatever we are doing. Um, there's a lot of different kinds of people that are also like that, you know, and, mm-hmm. and uh, rather than. Yeah. Sort of, and it, it just takes time to reach mm-hmm. everybody. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. In that kind of way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Really? I think that's probably true. I mean, I would love for for these things to move faster, but but I'm always gratified when you know I see how, for example, sportscasters and newscasters mm-hmm. in in general, how it used to be, you know, your basic white male, mm-hmm. and and now there's women, there's people of mm-hmm. color, there's you know all kinds, and um, and because people watch television so much, I, I have, I, I mean, maybe I'm just being foolishly optimistic, but I think those things matter. Mm-hmm. And I think it is making a difference, but um, we've got a long way to go. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, I appreciate the way that you both mm-hmm. framed that as well. And then even as we've been talking, you know, thinking back to some of the earlier comments that we had in the conversation too, it also makes me wonder, and this is getting a little speculative, but just about those bonds early in life too, early sure. in childhood, if there are windows of opportunity to expand that circle in a sense, like you were talking about, Larry, so that yeah. bonds form earlier and that there's less of this we and them, us and them kind of framework from early on and whether, you know, from a biological perspective, whether that would also have long-term effects as people become adults. And again, I'm speculating, but just as we're having this conversation and thinking through some of those, so those topics as well. Yeah, I think so. I mean, there, there were some work done in rats though, where they, you have uh, rats that have different uh, patterns of uh, fur. Right. And uh, yeah. if, if they're raised with uh, other rats that have that have a different color mm. pattern of fur, mm-hmm. then they were more likely to show helpful behavior mm. uh, to them. So it, it does, yeah. uh, you know, learning, early learning is important. I think so. Um, and so, you know, I think just this is just something that we as a society, have to recognize is important uh-huh. and just pay attention to that and yeah. uh, increase, uh, you know, exposure to uh, all kinds of people. And um, um, so that, you know, the, the skin color and all of these things are not nationality or ethnic background are not yeah. the divis- the divisors of, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. of groups. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I I remember when I was in first grade in, in school. Again, this is this tiny little school in, mm-hmm. in British Columbia. And there was an influx of kids who wore leather pants that were cut off above the knees. And, uh, and of course, what had happened was that there were uh, a number of Germans who were uh, moved to this area to, to farm and start a new life after the war. And uh, we were all absolutely fascinated by this. And of course, by the fact that they didn't talk like us. But, you know, when you're only six, these things don't matter very much. So within, you know, I don't know, six months or whatever, it was all kind of, they were still wearing their leather pants because I think they couldn't afford other pants, but <laughs> but it didn't matter anymore. And kids are much more easy about these things than adults mm-hmm. where, you know, we're kind of um, ossified a little bit, I suppose you'd say. Yeah, yeah. And again, I'm sure that ties back to the biology as well. I the think, the, I think. The learning, so lots that we could learn learn from uh the younger ones among us as well yeah so as we wrap up you know i was also just going to ask a little bit about you know some of the biology that we've been touching on but of um consolation behavior and then you know in this mode that we're in of kind of the ups and downs of the pandemic uh what that has also meant for us as there haven't been as the same types of ways to express that consolatory behavior and if there are ways that that can also inform how we interact moving forward, because Larry, as you mentioned, this is not something that's going to be gone anytime soon. So, um, Larry, I guess we can start with you as you've studied some of that as well. Yeah, I mean, I think you know. So, so you mentioned consolation that this is a so something that we studied in the voles, where we see that if an animal's partner is distressed or someone they know is distressed, they they release the oxytocin and it and it makes them be tuned into that partner and recognize mm-hmm. that they're distressed and then mm-hmm. do something. And, uh, you know, I think that we're designed, we're, we're organized in such a way that, you know, we detect others when they're in distress and mm-hmm. have some urge to help them. And maybe we, you know, we, we don't 
do that as much, you know, when we're isolated and, and things like that. But I think just being aware, you know, that this is something that we should do, you know, we, mm-hmm. we, you know, that doing that, you know, it's the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. Someone mm-hmm. recognize when someone is in distress, you know, it's also hard for us to know when people are in distress, mm-hmm. we see them once in a while on zoom. We don't know what's going on when they're, you know, alone. Mm-hmm. And just to kind of be aware of, you know, ask people, how are you doing? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and reach out to them to, to help if, we, if, if they need help, you know, mm-hmm. Pat, anything yeah. you want to add, add to that as well? Well, I, I was just thinking of other species, you know, there's mm-hmm. this wonderful data that Franz Deval has, uh, of, uh, chimpanzees, uh, consoling other chimpanzees mm-hmm. and uh, in the wild as well as as uh, in captivity. But of course, dogs are incredible in that way, too. You know, if you're upset or you're tearful or you've fallen or mm-hmm. the dog will come and they'll nuzzle and they'll lick. And if it's a baby, I mean, you know, there and you, this used to be just waved off as anecdotes. Mm-hmm. But but now there's it, it's there's so much real data as mm-hmm. well as lots and lots of anecdotes on on YouTube. It's hard to dismiss. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I think one thing that's happened during this epi- uh, pandemic is that people have realized how much of a lifeline that their pets are. Mm. Yes, you know, absolutely. Uh, because the, you know they really have bonded even mm. more strongly with their pets, and their yeah. pets are a source of joy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's really social interaction. Mm-hmm. That's oh, see them oh. as others. And so, you know, that's something we, we sort of, in the absence of other interactions, we sort mm-hmm. of uh, built and strengthened that. And, yeah. and that can help improve, you know, mental health. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but I do think that people need to um, eventually need to um, wean themselves off of only that. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, because having real human social interactions yes. is, is so important for so yeah. many other mm-hmm. uh, things. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, yeah. One thing I've often wondered, and I doubt there's any way that anyone's looked at this yet, is just you know some of the things that you've talked about in terms of the oxytocin being being released in certain interactions and how it can also build trust. Whether that can also happen on Zoom, if it happens to the lesser of... Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. a big deal. I don't okay. know if you've been talking about that specifically or... Yeah, yeah. That we've is been, a big deal. People have been talking about that since, you know, before Zoom, before the pandemic, mm-hmm. as people started texting, you know. Mm-hmm. So um, children who hear their... Uh, are with their mother and hear the mother's voice or their father, you know, engaging with them, they have uh, a yeah. big, big peak of oxytocin. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But if you get a text, you don't. Yeah. And I, I'm sure that the, that the oxytocin release that you get, I mean, even if you're just interacting with another person and it's a positive interaction, the eye to eye contact is mm-hmm. causing oxytocin release. Mm-hmm. And that's like, it's kind of like exercise in your social brain. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You need that from a day-to-day basis. And when you only get the interactions through zoom, I don't think you're having that same kind of interactions. You don't feel the connections. You're a 2D, you're yeah, yeah. a 2D image that moves. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, so that's having long-term uh, impacts on mm-hmm. There's an additional thing here, which is that oxytocin has what is sometimes referred to as a sibling peptide, which is vasopressin. And sometimes... Uh, the release of vasopressin 
can have to do with, you know, being careful, anxiety, uh, caution, and so forth. And it turns out that this is work by Sue Carter, that, that oxytocin can bind to vasopressin receptors with the upshot that there can be, you know, well, you know, yes, but maybe not. Mm. And when I first read her paper, I thought about some of the male-female encounters one has, especially, for example, as a teenager. You know, mm -hmm. is he really being mean or is that a joke? Or I kind of like him, but maybe not. And But I think those sorts mm -hmm. of complex dynamics, those ambiguities are often in play, even when we are contemplating helping someone or wondering whether we should, you know, give them shelter and so forth. Is it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, oh, yeah. yeah. Um, you have to be vigilant on who you help. You have and, to be. And, and yes. There's interesting work on rats, you know, showing that uh, an adult rat, if they're, uh, have a choice to interact with a juvenile rat that's in distress versus mm. another adult male that's in distress. Mm. They avoid that adult male that's mm. in distress, you know, and they help the that's juvenile interesting. because because an adult who is in distress uh, could be yeah. dangerous. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, and, yeah. And that is also regulated by oxytocin and mm -hmm. uh, and vasopressin and the, yeah, yeah. These, these brain mechanisms. So, yeah. so many of the things that we, you know, inter that we engage in every day that mm -hmm. we don't even yes. think about what's going on in the That's brain. Right. right. Yeah. We're starting to understand the hormones, the, mm -hmm. the chemicals in the brain that's doing it, but also now the circuitry. We're learning more and more about the circuitry of, mm -hmm. of how it's working um, and how the consequences of that are accumulating over yeah. years to change our behavior. And I think that the real, you know, what I'm really excited about of the future of this area of research, mm -hmm. um, you know, is that um, there are a lot of psychiatric situations, so psychiatric disorders, yeah. the depression where people are, are withdrawn socially. Mm -hmm. There's also uh, autism or schizophrenia and other areas, psychiatric disorders where people are just, um, you know, resistant to interacting with socially mm -hmm. or, or incapable that what we've been learning through these animals and with this oxytocin system is how we might be able to tweak the brain circuitry mm -hmm. and tweak these neurochemicals so that we can help improve mm -hmm. the social outcome of these disorders. Mm -hmm. And that's really the, the reason yeah. why yeah. I'm doing the work that I'm doing yeah. uh, is to try to, you know, to help us have a better, you know, social navigate the social world in a better yeah. way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. And it's so exciting and so encouraging yeah. in a lot of ways, especially as you mentioned, because it touches on so many different yeah. mental health challenges and psychiatric illnesses and really yeah. is key to how we interact on a, on a day to day basis. Oh, yeah. And so complicated. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. I think in a lot of ways, the listeners will really enjoy listening to this episode, too, and just maybe even self-evaluating as you <laughs> shared so many anecdotes <laughs> and just thinking about, you know, our daily interactions, because, I mean, it, you know, even as we were talking about. The difference between zoom and in person i mean i'm thinking you know during certain times during the pandemic just going to the grocery store and making eye contact uh, with a complete yes. stranger and how yes. elevating and encouraging that felt and could kind of lift yeah. you know lift me through the rest of the day as opposed to talking with people i knew really well just by zoom so yeah there's a lot there's a lot yeah. there and a lot that we're still learning moving forward as a closing question what are the things that give you all hope as as we move forward in our world with all that you know about social bonding and then also as we think about how we continue to navigate um, the pandemic? 
Uh, Pat, I guess we can start with you for this one. Well, I think in lots of ways, people have uh, really pulled together and been very sensible and, and tried to do the best they can. Uh, I think there've been many regrettable things uh, as, as we all know, but um, uh, you know, there are these kind of intervals where humans fill us with despair and then you know time moves on and and the despair changes to optimism and hope and so forth and I mean maybe this is just an old lady speaking but but uh I I I remain very hopeful about the future and and about how people will work together to solve certain kinds of problems even even though maybe at the moment um, we wish that there was more cooperation and less sort of name calling. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think in the last couple of years, you know, our world has really been shaken up. Mine was shaken up, you know, with the politics and yeah. with COVID and just, uh, you know, thinking about what the future holds. And, and so, yeah, I think it's, there was a depth, uh, you know, mm -hmm. we were in a deep spot and, um, that's why I sort of, I, I changed my life, you know, it's become trying to be healthy. I lost like 40 pounds and yeah, everything. I thought you did, yeah. Yeah, so uh, you know, I think that we're going to do the same thing as a society. You know, I we're think look so. Back. You know, it's not just COVID. It was, it's politics. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Social injustice issues and all these things is really turmoil, okay? Mm -hmm. But uh, we're going to get through this. And pretty yeah. soon it's going to be three years later, four years later, five 10 years later, we're going to look back at that and we're going to say that was a changing point. Mm -hmm. um, and also, you know, in terms of the science, we're going to think about the things that we mm -hmm. know. And, and there have been a lot of changes in terms of, um, you know, social justice and uh, attention to diversity and things I think like so. that, that have been happening. Yeah. Um, I think that's going to continue. And I, you know, I think I just like, I'm an optimist. So I like to, to see things that have happened that we're really bad mm. uh, in a positive light because yeah. they're creating positive change. And I think they do actually. And, and sometimes you just have to go through this sort of dark night of the soul mm. to come out at the other end and really good things will happen. Mm. So yeah, I'm, like, I, yeah, I, like World I, War II and the baby boomers, you know, yeah, mm. you know, mm. who knew? Yeah. <laughs> Opportunity in a lot of ways. I think, I yeah. think. Yeah. Well, definitely appreciate both of you being here again. I think this is going to be so uh, enlightening for a lot of folks and, and encouraging oh, just to, I hope so. yeah. you know, to listen to the insights that you shared and, you know, just the fascinating research and all the different angles and nuances. And I think just also, you know, just to have a better understanding of how some of the animal models and what we can learn from the animal kingdom about how yeah. Um, yeah. we interact as humans as well. And then just thinking developmentally. So grateful to both of you for taking time out of your schedules, your busy schedules. I'm impressed by both of your exercise routines, by the way. So that's something that is going to have to encourage me to turn into action, hopefully. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Actually, exercise raises the level of oxytocin. There you go. It'll feel good. Yeah. Yep. Yep. So that gives not, me more not at first, but <laughs> <laughs> yes, well said. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Thanks so much to both of you for being on the Addy Hour. Definitely appreciate your time and all the insights that you shared.